This is episode 0XD of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Ryan Bemrose. Today is the 80-year anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, a day which would live in infamy if our current generation weren't working so hard to erase all of our history and pave the way for future generations to make exactly the same mistakes over again. It's the event that brought the United States into World War II, a war which was, up till that point, just a regional conflict in Europe where an authoritarian mental patient lied his way into power, consolidated that power by dividing people by race, and then used that power to try to force his brand of socialism and corporatism onto a bunch of other nations who still generally thought that freedom was a decent idea. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Here on America's left coast, I heard almost nothing about the event, even while trolling news sites to research today's stories. I have to believe someone somewhere in America remembered the day, infamy and all that, Maybe someone in Hawaii, where the attack took place. There's got to be someone who cares about local history. It can't all just be retired baby boomers who moved there because of the weather and now spend their days making money on skyrocketing real estate prices and complaining about the tourists, can it? Hi, Mom. From the Mr. Information Department. In a move sure to come as a surprise to those of you who still type words into a Google search page and expect to get results from the public internet, rather than the carefully censored government and corporate approved propaganda and advertisements that the search engine delivers, Torrent Freak reports that Google.nl is voluntarily censoring all search results related to the piratebay.org and over 100 related domains. The reason given is an October 2020 order from an Amsterdam court requiring local ISPs Zigo KPN and XS4All to block the domains from their users. While the order, which the ISPs fought against for 10 years and ultimately lost, does not name or involve Google in any way, the company has reportedly taken it upon themselves to memory hold the entire Pirate Bay site and all related sites. According to the article, if you search for site colon thepiratebay.org from a Dutch IP address, Google simply returns zero results found. There is no indication that such a site even exists, and certainly no disclaimer explaining that they are censoring your results on behalf of corporate copyright monopolies and their government minions. And yes, I understand the futility of suggesting Europeans, 93% of whose searches used Google according to StatCounter's October 21 report, to consider an alternate search engine. But I'll suggest it anyway. Use anything but Google. They aren't giving you internet search results. They're giving you a filtered facsimile of the internet, carefully manipulated to show you results that reinforce what they want you to believe. As early as 2010, they started censoring search results, and people who cared about privacy were pushing hard, even then saying, Google is no good. They're showing you what they want you to see. But nobody cared. In 2012, when... Uh, You know, in a big political move, they started removing gun and ammo sales from their shopping site. And then it continued on until 2017, when the woke activists within the employee ranks started choosing the company's direction. 
People have gone on record saying that they want to use the search engine to change people's minds about social issues, about political issues, and saying they intend to use their search engine to manipulate people and change their votes to make sure that another Brexit or another Donald Trump never happen again. Fiction? Consider the testimony of Senate Judiciary Committee from July 2019 by Dr. Robert Epstein, who produced evidence that the company's search manipulation swayed, quote, a rock-bottom minimum of 2.6 million votes toward Hillary Clinton in 2016. But it was, he said it was more likely 10 to 15 million votes. He just couldn't prove all of them. By carefully manipulating the search results of those people that their algorithm determined to be on-the-fence voters. The company has only become more powerful and more woke in the last five years. Since the beginning of 2020, they don't even bother hiding it anymore. Any information, for example, that disagrees with the official COVID narrative, as told by the WHO or CDC, is censored, memory hold, wiped off the face of the Internet, even when those organizations go back and change their story afterward. Anyone who disagrees with the selected story or even questions the science we're being told to blindly trust is canceled, deplatformed, erased from the Internet, all neatly labeled misinformation and erased. That, by the way, goes against how science is supposed to work. Anybody who was actually taught anything useful in school knows that the scientific method, one of the most important steps in it, is question what you've been told before. That's how new information happens. It, you then go on. It's very important that you test that information to find out if it's viable or not. But you have to question. If somebody tells you don't question, they're not talking about science. They're talking about a cult that they've labeled science. Oh, and note that they never go back to uncensor any misinformation that's later proven to be true. This isn't about truth. It's about control and obedience. And don't even get me started on YouTube. There's entire podcasts out there dedicated to examples of YouTube censorship. To be clear, I'm not here to debate the particulars of the COVID narrative. I absolutely support your right to come to your own conclusions. But you can't do that if you're not getting the information you need to make those decisions. And companies like Google are taking that right away from you by refusing to allow you your own choice, your own free will. That is why censorship is a problem. It denies you the ability to make your own informed choices. It is a form of thought control. And by using Google search, you're doing it to yourself. Someone asked me the other day, if I don't use Google, what do I use? As a matter of fact, on my computer, I have Google blocked at the pie hole just so that nothing on my machine does. You don't have to go that far. I'm told that I'm a little crazy. At the moment, my primary search engine for most things is DuckDuckGo. When I need to cross-reference or verify something, for example, when doing research for this show, I'll also use Start Page Quant or Cirex. I also use Bing sometimes, not for anything political, because Microsoft censors a lot of political info, although they're not nearly as good at it as Google is. They do. Still, Bing acknowledges that the Pirate Bay exists, even in the Netherlands. What I do use Bing for is image search, with their censorious safe search filters off. Exactly what I use it to search for is nobody's business but me and my cat. From the Onions Can Make You Cry department, the record reports on a suspicious network of servers discovered within the Tor network by a node operator called Nusinu. For those unfamiliar, Tor is a public network of thousands of servers intended to help anonymize internet traffic. When you use the network, your computer connects and sends your packets to a random entry node or a guard node, which the packets then bounce around amongst multiple randomly selected middle nodes and eventually reach an exit node where the packet is sent it back out to the Internet. 
The idea is that nobody can track your traffic through the network of anonymous servers, including the server on the opposite end, which you might want to exchange traffic with but don't want to be tracked by. There are also servers called Onion Services that only exist inside the Tor network. Your packets enter, bounce around between them, and ultimately are served by a node within Tor rather than exiting back to the internet. So what Nusinu found was a subnetwork of nodes that he dubbed KAX-17. This network consisted of at least 900 servers, which is up to 10% of all Tor nodes at the peak. When a machine is added to the Tor network, its manifest is supposed to contain a contact email in order to be able to contact the manager of the node, just in case it's misconfigured or damaging the network. But in the interest of keeping the no total node numbers up, the Tor project hasn't really been enforcing that. The KAX-17 consisted of almost entirely nodes with no contact info at all. Another interesting characteristic of KAX-17 is that it is made up of mostly entry and middle point nodes, which is unusual. The, the story goes on to talk about uh, an, an interesting attack that I want to bring up called BTCMITM20, which occurred last year which consisted almost entirely of malicious exit nodes. This particular attack was designed when an, a Tor packet comes along and is being forwarded back to the main internet. It tries to detect if there's a Bitcoin address in the node, say somebody making a purchase with Bitcoin and would rewrite the Bitcoin address in that packet in order to hijack user payments. KAX 17 was different though. It consisted primarily of middle and entry nodes. This kind of network is not useful for rewriting packets, but is extremely useful for analyzing and tracing traffic, profiling users, and tracking their activity, provided you have enough nodes, like, say, 10% of the Tor nodes. In fact, according to research that was published this week, what Nusinu said was, for any random Tor user, there was a 16% chance that that user would connect through one of KAX17's entry servers and a 35% chance that they would pass through one of its middle relays. The report goes on to say that a high probability of relays and guards can definitely be used to identify hidden services and can also be used to decloak users, especially if you have some other means of tracking the middle relay past the guard, such as monitoring common public services. Upon reporting these to Tor's security team, the team removed a large batch of services in October and again, another batch in November. New servers were re-added within weeks that exhibit exactly the same behavior. So what does all of this mean? Well, according to Nusinu, he says that all of this is very strong evidence that a state or corporate actor is pulling off of these attacks. For one, it's been active since 2017 and a four years solid is pretty well funded. They can afford to rent a large number of servers equally spaced all over the world and they're trying to stay secret. At one point in early on, one of the servers did publish an email address, presumably by mistake. That email address happened to be used on the Tor services by an account who was arguing against closing the loopholes that were being presented here. So what does all of this mean? Well, there's somebody out there who has been tracking Tor exit nodes and internal Tor services since 2017, and if you are a regular Tor user, they've probably got a pretty good idea what your habits are, what you connect to, and what you're doing out there. Which, aside from being pretty creepy, completely circumvents the entire purpose of Tor. 
Who is doing it? We may never know. The anonymity provided by Tor takes care of that. It could be the Chinese government. It could be a U.S. three-letter agency. It could be Google. John and Adam over at the No Agenda podcast have had a thesis that the U.S. government compromised Tor years ago and have been using it ever since to track people who'd rather stay private. And this sure seems to lend evidence to that idea. Not speculating any further, I will say researching this attack led me to learn a lot about the network and also brought me even more doubt about whether or not anything can be truly private online. If online transactions really can't be made private, perhaps the old tried and true methods really are the best. Perhaps I should consider my next drug deal with cash in a dark shady alley. I may get shivved, but at least it'll be privately. From the New Technology Old Motives Department. A quick follow-up on the Apple AirTag report from Angry Tech News number 4. Recall that Apple is mass-marketing a small quarter-sized device whose location can be tracked to within a few feet anywhere in the world, all from an easy-to-use app. Apple expects this to only be used for finding lost luggage and keys, and certainly not as an easy-to-use tracking gadget available on the cheap to anyone who has seen too many spy movies and has both an iPhone and nefarious intent. Well, not all is going to plan for Apple in that regard, according to a press release from the York Regional Police Department just outside of Toronto, Canada. Investigators with their auto theft unit are advising residents that they have identified a new method being used by thieves to track and steal high-end vehicles across the region. Thieves are identifying cars they want to steal in public parking lots such as shopping centers or airports, planting an air tag in an out-of-the-way place on the vehicle, such as inside a trailer hitch or under the gas cap or charging port cap, and then later using the air tag to find the vehicle in a home driveway at a time when nobody is watching it. From there, the theft is more conventional. Pry open a door with a screwdriver, plug in an electronic device into the diagnostic port to make the car recognize the thief's key, and then simply drive the car away. But the AirTags thing, that's new. And they say it's already happened five times in the last six weeks across the York region. As discussed previously, listen to Angry Tech News number 4, Manifest Transit, if you want to hear the full lowdown. Apple has included some security features into the AirTags to try to prevent such a scenario. For one thing, the AirTag makes an audible sound if it's away from its paired iPhone for three days. For another, if Apple detects an AirTag that's not paired to your iPhone moving along with you, it will send a notification to your iPhone. Activating that notification on your iPhone will take you to a page which describes what this thing is and how to deactivate it. Of course, if you don't have an iPhone, you don't get any of that. All you can do is hope that your car isn't stolen within the first three days so that you can hear the sound that it makes and uh, hope also that the thieves haven't had the foresight to open up the AirTag and disable the speaker. York Regional Police also provided the following tips for people who don't want their car stolen. Park in a locked garage and not a driveway or street, which I guess requires having a locked garage. Some of us keep junk in there. Use a steering wheel lock. Install a lock on the car's data port. Today I learned that's a thing. Install a camera pointed at your car. Check your local surveillance laws to see if that's legal. And, uh, oh, I love this one. Call police if you notice any suspicious activity. For example, if you notice your car being stolen. I don't necessarily want to make a habit of saying I told you so on this show, but it's probably going to happen anyway. So yeah, I told you so. From the maybe it's a third world, maybe it's his first time around department. UK-based analytics firm Compare the Market has released a report ranking 110 countries around the world by their average price for broadband internet. 
The country with the cheapest broadband in the world is Ukraine, with an average price of $6.08 per month. All numbers are in, I've converted them all to U.S. dollars. It's followed closely by Russia, Romania, Moldova, and India. The country with the most expensive broadband is Ethiopia, which itself is an outlier on this list with an average monthly price of broadband for $423.88. The report doesn't say why broadband is so expensive in a country whose average monthly salary is $181, but I imagine the answer to that is infrastructure and corruption. Second to last is UAA, United Arab Emirates, with $98.90 per month. Qatar, Zimbabwe, and Oman rounded out the bottom of the list. So why did I bring this up, you might ask? Don't I always have a sarcastic point of view to make? I do, in fact. What caught my attention was number nine on the list of the worst broadband, the worst, most expensive on the planet. Have you guessed who it is yet? It's the United States, with an average monthly broadband cost of $66.13. And by the way, this report does not count the $10 or so of nickel and dime fees that get tacked onto every bill. So it actually is higher, but whatever. Every time somebody brings up the exorbitant cost of broadband in the U.S., there are usually apologists calling out how the U.S. is too big and it's expensive to run broadband all that distance. But you know what country is even bigger than the United States? Russia. If you were paying attention, I just mentioned them a minute ago. At the second lowest monthly rate right behind Ukraine, $6.91 a month U.S. dollars for broadband in Russia, which is bigger than the U.S., Another country that's bigger than the U.S. is China, who ranked at the 14th best slot. Canada also pays less than the U.S. for broadband, but not by much. They're at 12th worst. And you know, I might even buy the last mile argument for the people who live way out in the rural parts of the country. The people whose last mile of service is literally a mile. But that doesn't explain how people are still paying that much money in the middle of the city, in the big apartment blocks. By the distance logic, people in downtown Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or Seattle or even the city where I live in, 100,000 people, should be paying under $10 a month because of high population density, right? No, this one's down to corruption as well, specifically local monopolies enforced and protected by bought-off politicians and captured regulatory agencies. A new competitor attempting to start a broadband company in the U.S. is going to face onerous regulatory hurdles from the local government, massive fees to either use existing poles or plant new ones, and a huge uphill battle to convince people to switch. And that's assuming the local city council even lets a competitor try to move in. Screw it. You've heard enough rants from me today. Broadband is too damned expensive. Please feel free to express rage over that fact. And thank you to Raymond Zorger for producing this episode of Angry Tech News. Angry Tech News is released on the value for value model. We don't take advertising. We don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you got value out of listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send what you think the show has been worth to you. $5, $50, $500, more. I, I won't turn it down. That's it for me. My name is Ryan Pemrose, the Angry Programmer. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.